0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to this outspoken event with Gareth Evans. My name is Stephen Lang, and I'll be your host this evening. Uh, Before we begin, I think it's appropriate that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gathered, the Jinaburra people. They're the keepers of the ancient stories of this place. I'd like also to acknowledge those who continue to work for the protection and promotion of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, creating a legacy for future elders and leaders. Now, I've been struggling a bit as to how best to introduce this evening's guest. I mean, let me say to start with that, it's always an odd thing to do to um, spend four or five minutes at the beginning of an evening introducing somebody who presumably you know exactly who they are <laughs> because otherwise you wouldn't be here. But it's, it, it's kind of a process of acknowledgement and recognition of, of the guest. But in this case though, the task of reducing the 5,000 words on his Wikipedia page or on his own website <laughs> down to a couple of hundreds is just simply too hard. What do you leave in, what do you leave out? So rather than list his achievements um, in Australian politics and his remarkable role with the International Crisis Group and the responsibility to protect in the decades since he left Australian politics, or his gr- present role as Chancellor of the Australian National University I thought it may be best to brush it all aside and say something personal. That so very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I recall almost 30 years ago, an interview I heard on PM. You, those of you who remember PM from 30 years ago will remember the great Hugh Evans was, was running PM at that time. And he, there was uh, some reporter was talking to the then foreign minister, Gareth Evans. The subject was Cambodia. And the interviewer was, as interviewers are, are wont to do, trying to find an angle or a wedge or some lever to put Gareth off his argument to question why, perhaps, we were facilitating talks with the Khmer Rouge. And Gareth um, replied, and, and this is a paraphrase from 30 years ago, but I remember it as clearly as I, I heard it at that time. He said something like, what we have here is a country riven by civil war and atrocity, a people with legacies of hatred that go back generations. We find ourselves in the unique position of being able to broker peace talks between all parties, regardless of their histories. Our role is to try simply to find a way to get them to sit together at the table, and in order to do that, we have to tread very gently. We have to, above all, listen, not to judge. Now, I don't know what I was doing at the time, probably cooking dinner, but um, I remember stopping in my tracks at wonderment at, to hear this, at a politician speaking to me like I was an adult, without slogans, as if I was intelligent enough to understand nuance. I thought then, as I do now, that we were, as a nation singularly blessed to have someone like Gareth Evans as foreign minister. it's the way I feel tonight to have him in Milani. Please welcome Gareth Evans to Milani.) Thank you.
1: Thank you. the American presidential candidate Adley Stevenson once said, flattery is all right as long as you don't inhale. So. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen, for that introduction.
0: Very good, guy. Yeah. Well, look, um, I wonder if we might begin, please, by talking about what drew you into politics in the first place. As I understood it, and um, Stanley, you first got your taste of it at Melbourne University in the 60s. And uh, but many of the people who play with student politics don't go on to make a career of it. What, what was it that... Yeah, well,
1: there was certainly no family background that drove me in any way. I came from working class family trade union orientation, yes, but not politics as such. And it was a pretty desolate environment in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up, or it would seem that way to me. And it was really that period at the Melbourne University campus in the 1960s that did awaken a sense of the scale of the social justice issues which were afflicting Australian society and the liberty, freedom issues that um, were pressing upon us. Those were the days when there was heavy-duty censorship, when there was nothing resembling any kind of abortion law reform. There was capital punishment. There was uh, heavy-duty racism everywhere you looked, in the treatment of indigenous people, the support for the apartheid policies of the South African regime. I mean, everything about the place was generating. An urge to react, and my generation I think were the first and some of our generation here tonight were the first to sort of sense that and react to it. And I guess that was the energising factor along with a few crucial teachers and people in my early days, but that that rather naïve belief that somehow if one got into politics by whatever route proved possible, one could actually make a difference. One could make Australia a better place. One could make the world a better place. And that was that was unequivocally right from the beginning. I think the, the driving instinct for me. I had no idea how I was going to operationalise that. I had no connections, no links into the political process as such. And until Whitlam came along with the you know the late '60s uh, environment and 1972 election. Uh, there was nothing really to sort of hang your hat on in terms of the formal political process, but I did get very engaged and very energised, as I guess a few people here might have, uh, with the uh, the Whitlam Revolution. It was that, combined with that sense of ferment in the, uh, the campus environment and the social environment of the 60s that really set things alight. It would, part of it also was um, was travel experiences. The Americans were uh, were silly enough to invite me to on a scholarship to go to the United States uh, as a student leader as part of their CIA program to uh, encourage people to <laughs> to understand. So I went over there in the mid 60s as the president of the Melbourne Students' Representative Council as a kind of lukewarm supporter of the Vietnam War. This was before conscription and before anyone had really become understanding and energised. And I came back as a fierce opponent of the, uh, of the Vietnam War and everything to sailed with it. And I also came back with a much clearer understanding of the civil rights movement in the United States that was developing at the time in spades and I was on campuses like Berkeley when the free speech movement was taking off. And I was travelled in the south and saw for myself just the, the horror, the, the discrimination that was occurring. And all of these were very energising factors. And But
0: you actually went to Vietnam in 1968 as well. I,
1: I, yeah, well that was as part of a, uh, on my way to, to Oxford to take up a scholarship, I spent about six months because I wasn't clear whether I was ever going to get to any of these countries again so I went on the most comprehensive sort of Odyssey, it's possible to imagine, all the way up through Southeast Asia and across through South Asia, down to Africa, back up through the Middle East to Europe. The travel agent had an absolute nightmare, got no extra commission at all for all these uh, plane hops. But um, one of the stops I made, quite uh, sort of stupidly in a way, was to, to get myself to Saigon in the middle of the, the Vietnam War. Just because I wanted to see what was going on, um, you know, to the extent that one could, I have as, as to, a tourist, as, as a tourist, as a backpacking <laughs> student on my way to uh, to go to Oxford. So I arrived at the airport, and um, which wasn't exactly geared for backpacking students or tourists of any kind. Finally, managed to hitch a ride uh, into the city. I spent ages trying to find a uh, somewhere to stay. Finally, found myself uh, in a place which clearly wasn't geared for anything longer than two hours stays, but nonetheless I found, my <laughs> <laughs> I found myself in this extraordinarily squalid, you know, room, wondering what the hell was going on, and, and, very, and what, these are one of the many, many experiences I talk about in the book to sort of try and explain why I became energised as I did on so many different fronts. Within the first few minutes of being in that room, in this rather squalid, seedy backstreet hotel in Saigon, I heard a great commotion on the staircase outside me, I opened the door, And here was a gigantic American GI beating with a broom handle a half-naked Vietnamese girl downstairs and just the most awful sort of brutality and that encapsulated in, in all sorts of ways that the reporting about the war hadn't really yet made an impact upon me. I just thought the horror, the squalor, the misery. Uh, that's associated with any wartime environment, and not least one of the wrong country in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that was an energising experience, I guess, along with many others.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you begin this book here with... at the point where you've actually now become a senator, and Bob Hawke is... You're, you're in Bob Hawke's government. It's 1983, and you come into the role as Attorney General, which to... I mean, how old were you at that point?
1: I was in my late 30s, I think. But the book, by the way, is not a formal autobiography. I didn't want to inflict that on anybody. Uh, it's thematic, and yeah. it begins with justice, the, yeah. the legal issues, law reform issues, and so I start with Attorney General and then give the backstory to that. Then it goes on to the issue of race, which I was very heavily involved in all sorts of ways over a very long period, from my first time with... Lionel Murphy writing the Racial Discrimination Act through to the, the Mabo, native title legislation, the Senate, which I helped to steer through. And then I'd talk about my period as resource and energy minister, uh, we, the we, enterprise yeah. issue, then i talk about the foreign affairs stuff, but going back to the, and then yeah, talk i talk mean, about other I things. Just, I was just but, curious, but, because when you, you're, but, this but, was but your dream yeah. job, wasn't
0: it? I mean, this was- hey, This
1: was my dream job. This was my absolutely dream job, because up until, up until then, the way in which I channeled all these instincts for social improvement, social justice, Betterment of society was essentially through a civil liberties law reform kind of, of, um, of spectrum i mean that's i 'd done law not because anyone in my family again was a lawyer we, we weren 't criminal enough or rich enough to have anything to do with lawyers <laughs> um, but I did law because that 's sort of you know what you did, and there was too much blood involved in any of the other professions so uh, but I was I was just instinctively drawn to the big civil liberty issues and all through my pre-parliamentary career, I've been very actively involved in councils for civil liberties and miscellaneous campaigns and on a hundred different issues. And in my first years in parliament, um, I became quite soon the, the front bench spokesman on legal affairs, uh, shadow attorney general. So when we got into government in 83, uh, and I was made attorney general, I had a huge law reform agenda, about 54 priority uh, <laughs> items. <laughs> literally 54 priority item, and was absolutely determined to sort of finish the unfinished Whitlam agenda, Murphy agenda, and my own agenda. And it was really a very exciting time. But, um, but I came down good. to earth with a pretty it big thud. and did. I think it that's what it you're about to come It didn't go quite
0: for. so well, did it, really? No,
1: it didn't go quite so well. I mean, I first of all got caught up in the kuma affair, which some of you will remember. It's certainly engraved in my heart because we we made, I think, some terrible mistakes in the handling of that, and I was visibly very involved as Attorney General, going along with the, the ride that, that Bob Hawke had mapped out as appropriate. I got caught up in the, uh, the Tasmanian spy flights affair when I was protecting the South West Tasmanian wilderness, but in circumstances which lent themselves to parody thereafter. So, so uh,
0: I mean, I think this is where you learn not not, not not to be self-deprecating in front of a camera. Is that? Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> the, the,
1: the, the story, for those of you who remember, this, the famous spy flights business in Tasmania, which occupied acres of newsprint at the time, we were determined. We came into government, even though it cost us votes in Tasmania in doing so. Absolutely determined to preserve the southwest Tasmanian wilderness from further depredation with the Gordon below Franklin Dam, and we, the very first thing we did as Attorney General, as I did, was to try and. Uh, get an injunction going in the High Court to stop further development of the dam while we then litigated the case and brought to bear all the constitutional armoury that we possibly could. But in order to get an injunction, we had to have some evidence of what was actually happening on the ground. We didn't want to send in people because it was a very volatile situation. So somebody came up with the bright idea of sending a plane over um, at about 30,000 feet, right up there, that high, taking grid pattern pictures of on successive days of what was happening on the ground, and this was to be tendered as evidence. And uh, someone in the, my Attorney General's department suggested this. The Defence Department said, yes, we can do this. We've got planes flying all over the country all the time on training missions. We can easily do this. But somehow, um, on the day in question, uh, the, uh, it was clouded in, up down to about uh, 10,000 feet, 9,000, 10,000 feet, <coughs> and with the um, impact even lower than that. And with that uh, spirit of uh, adventure and, um, and willingness to uh, take initiatives, which the Australian Defence Forces are justly famous, the pilot in question, imperfectly tasked as to what the enterprise was, decided they wanted photographs. He was going to take photographs. So he went in <coughs> at an uh, F-111 or Mirage <laughs> uh, at 800 feet, <laughs> uh, frightening every known living creature in the process. And producing photographs which are absolutely unusable, <laughs> just a blurred mess. <laughs> uh, this, of course, generated all this reaction from the Tasmanian premiere about spy flights and all the rest of it, and led me to make, uh, you know, one of my many self-deprecatory remarks, which over the years have backfired by saying, A, hey, two things, A, hey, whatever you do, don't call me Biggles. And for years thereafter, I was <laughs> presented at functions with little teddy bears with goggles and, and uh, with helmets saying, so here's your Biggles thing, just to remind you as if I'd forgotten. And the other thing, of course, was at the National Press Club a few weeks um, later, I was asked, um, you know, how I thought about the, the politics of this thing and having been responsible for putting the government on the nose. And I said, well, you know, I can only invoke uh, what, I, what I like to think of as the streaker's defence. It seemed your worship like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so, uh, so this sort of thing, I, I had a, a chapter of incidents like this throughout my my year and a bit as Attorney General, which led Hawke and the government to regard me as a complete ministerial liability. I'd been, an, <laughs> I'd been an asset to them in opposition because we'd been able to strike many, many blows against a government which was hopeless on all these issues, and it was great stuff in opposition. But in government, not only was I getting myself in trouble on things like this and on a Bill of Rights which nobody was interested in and all the rest of my agenda. But I was actually causing the government um, embarrassment. So um, the, main, the main problem was that, I mean, nobody was really interested in this stuff in the government. It was the, the economic agenda was what was absolutely consuming Hawke and Keating and all my colleagues and all the time-wasting that I was doing with all my agenda of what they regard as fringe issues was, uh, was described graphically to me by, by Hawke, as I describe in the book, as just a wank. So uh, <laughs> If you'll forgive one extra layer of vulgarity, which I didn't put in the book, Hawke actually said to me on one occasion, this is, what you're doing as attorney, it's not just a wank, mate. It's a two-hand job. <laughs> as I said, I, I don't want to go too many more places like that. <laughs> so, I mean,
0: following, following on from that, how can I put this politely, you were, you were moved aside uh, to be the minister in a couple of other portfolios, mines hmm. and energy and various different other things like that.
1: Pipes, and, pipes and holes. Yeah, But Resource but, and energy, pipes and holes, I used to call them. By
0: 1988, all had been forgiven, yep. and you were given your real dream job, which turned out to be actual foreign minister, yep. and you were, by this time, in your own words, infinitely wiser, and rather than simply reacting to events, took your time to figure out what it was you thought Australian foreign policy, policy objectives should be, uh, and how to advance them.
1: Yeah, I, I approached the job in a rather interesting sort of way. I mean, life had been a big learning experience in all these earlier portfolios. And I guess I did bring a lot more wisdom about the tolerance of my colleagues and a lot more maturity about the art of the political possible, the art of the politically possible. Uh, but I suppose my major contribution was one that irritated a lot of people at the beginning, because I didn't jump into rushing around making big statements about the US alliance or what we ought to be doing in various parts of Asia. I really spent quite a lot of time and made quite a lot of big speeches just addressing sort of the process of foreign policy making, how we should go about identifying and setting priorities. And one innovation which I did bring to the role, which has remained important for me ever since, I haven't been fantastically successful in persuading anyone else since that it matters very much, but to me what mattered was getting right the notion of what were Australia's national interests, which traditionally have always been thought of in just two baskets. Our security interests, physical security, our economic interests, prosperity, everything that goes with it. And anything else that we do, whether it's trying to make peace in godforsaken parts of the world or stop atrocity crimes being perpetrated or do something now about climate change or do something about health pandemics or disaster relief or just... All of that was regarded as a sort of a, just a residual category of value issues, which you did if you were in the mood, but which really had nothing much to do with Australia's interests, which was the core business of foreign policy. This seemed to me to be, and still seems to me, to be very unsatisfactory, because your national identity, your sense of pride in the kind of country that you are, your sense of worth, depends on doing a bit more than just looking after your security and looking after your prosperity. There are dozens of global public goods issues, regional public goods issues out there, which are only capable of being tackled through cooperative international solutions behaviour. So what I ended up saying very early on was it seemed to me there was a third category of national interest which we ought to be building and constructing our foreign policy around. And that was the national interest that every country had, not just Australia, national interest in being and being seen to be a good international citizen, by which I meant playing an active cooperative role in problem solving around these global public goods issues, whether it was human rights violations or whether it's climate or whatever.
0: But, it, I mean, it sort of takes us back to, of course, that kind of great man in history role in some ways, that you yeah. can actually... The, the relationship between the key individuals in these plays can be incredibly significant.
1: Yeah, I don't want to denigrate the, the role of underlying forces, economic and whatever, and which keep academics occupied uh, endlessly and finding big patterns and shapes. Uh, but the role of individuals really does matter. I mean, whether you... Whether you manage a transition like South Africa and you find yourself with a Mandela rather than a Mugabe, whether you're managing a transition in Eastern Europe and find yourself with a Milosevic, whether you're in Turkey and find yourself with an Ataturk or or now an Erdogan, whether you're in Israel and find yourself with a... Whether Yitzhak Rabin or a Benjamin Netanyahu, these things really, really, really do matter. And it's very hard to just say that's just part of the ebb and flow. Individuals do matter.
0: So, um, I wonder if we might move on just a little bit to the year, from your years in Australian politics, to your activities over the last couple of decades. Um, perhaps, uh, though, before we delve into the International Crisis Group and the responsibility to protect, you could tell us what it was like to leave um, Australian politics after, after 21 years in Parliament? That...
1: Well, I was only too glad to get out of the place, I have to say, um, <laughs> <laughs> after 21 years. I mean, burnout is a real factor. I mean, I actually said to Keating towards the end of my 13-year cabinet minister, uninterrupted terrain, and there's, there's only one other Labor Party person who's been in the Australian Cabinet for as long as I have. Trivial Pursuit question, door prize okay, tonight, who was right. the other one? I I was I I was burnt out, and um, when we went into opposition, I managed a transition to the lower house, and I was deputy leader of the opposition. But they were probably my three worst years in politics because I was tired, I was exhausted, I just sort of had it. I mean, I remember saying to Keating towards the end of that. that period in government, I wish to God we had some sort of sabbatical system here. All I need to do is get three months out of this place, out of this system, to have a complete refresh, go off to Harvard or somewhere, you know, sit around and just read and think and, and decompress. But of course that's totally impossible in the political environment we're now in. And I think it's very, very hard to sustain that trajectory over time. I mean I I did describe myself moving into opposition, I think I invented the phrase of RDS, uh, suffering relevance deprivation syndrome, (laughs) which um, has now become sort of part of the Australian lexicon because it so accurately describes uh, how how so many people who have been central to the action feel at being pushed out of it. But but I, I felt basically, and I had three very sort of unhappy years in opposition, I wasn't, I wasn't mentally right for that sort of period, uh, for that sort of role. And I thought just, you know, unless by some miracle we win the next election, I'm, I'm out of here. Uh, because I, I'd, I'd seen so many people, you know, senior figures in Australian politics who, having experienced this sort of inevitable end to the, the highs of your political career, either choose to sort of hang around as, as sort of bellowing bulls trying to impose themselves on the agenda when everybody's just sick of the sight and sound of them, or else they sort of hang around as grey ghosts going down the corridors and just being a sort of a presence and sort of embarrassing everybody. So I thought the only thing to do was get the hell out of the place. So I went off to um, overseas. I looked for an overseas job, several overseas jobs, and fell on my feet, I think, when I was asked to take over the leadership of this uh, nascent, early developing international NGO, the International Crisis Group, which is all about conflict prevention and resolution. And, and, and I, I do want to talk
0: about that, but I, th- I've got one more question there that I was kind of curious about, because reading the book. I also, and, and having been a little bit politically involved myself in, the, in this local area, one, one of the things I, I get the impression of is that there is, a, in the last 50 years of, of your life in politics, there's been an enormous amount of time spent sitting in rooms, in meetings, listening to people talk. And I, I, just, I just wonder, you know, from the point of a mere mortal, how, how do we cope?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, it's, I mean, it's that part of the job is almost beyond mortal endurance. You, uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, but I mean, um, but you know, when you're in this business, um, you are working 12, 13, 14 hours a day, and there are only so many hours spent in meetings of that kind. The rest of the time, I mean, you're you're trying to read, you're trying to think, you're trying to write, you're trying to. I and mean, then you've got to do all the schmoozing and other stuff with your your political colleagues to keep yourself sort of afloat. Um, but it's a very time-consuming business, and uh, it's an exhausting business. And I think it's only the adrenaline that keeps you going. And uh, you know, it's it, it's not. I mean, people keep asking me what the, what what is it that motivates politicians generally. And I mean, and I say in the book that in my experience, I mean, it really comes down to two big motivations, which are visible in everyone. And there's a sort of a, a continuum. Idealism at one end, yep, megalomania at the other. <laughs> um, and you know, you can locate almost anyone in politics on that spectrum. By megalomania, I mean you know, not so much power, power, power for its own sake, but the, the sense of the excitement of being there, politics for its own sake, politics as a process, politics because of the jollies you've got by being close to the action, the joy of being in the media, God help us, and that sort of stuff. Idealism is, is the you know, going into it because you want to actually get something done. And uh, you want to make a difference, even if you're wrong-headed about it, and people's agendas are very different. I do respect people in the political spectrum, even political opponents, who are clearly motivated by big ideas, big objectives, rather than just the joy of being there. So, um, you know, when you approach it like that way, uh, what are, what are the skills that enable you to survive um, in politics? Well, you know, resilience is the, is the critical one, the ability to take knocks. And for most normal human beings, the kind of inherent humiliations that are involved in seeking preselection, being knocked back, or finding yourself saying something dopey, which normally you'd get away with if it was just in private, but if it's in public, you were uh, doing something dopey and being just humiliated. These, these sort of things afflict almost everyone in politics at some stage of their their career. I refer in the book to the phenomenon of HPTFTU, which I recommend to those of you not familiar with it, the human propensity to fuck things up, HPTFTU, <laughs> which all of, all of us are guilty of in our professional public lives and our private lives, but in, for politicians, you know, when you trespass against that, you, you, you do it in a very, very public and very humiliating way. So. What is it that drives people you know, to do this? And you've got to be very strongly motivated to, to stay in the game. You've got to have, a, you've got to have a, you know, a skin that's really very thick indeed to survive the humiliations and the, the setbacks that are involved, and just the indifference. I and mean, then you, know, you bring a skill set to this particular problem, you know, maybe in your case, environmental issues and local government we were talking about before, yeah. and you feel you've really, really, really got something important to say and people are profoundly uninterested and say, so bugger off, you know, we've got other things to do. You know, the ability and the willingness to, to surmount that. I mean, it requires a psychological state of mind, which is not really very normal. Not really very normal. It, it's a, it's, an, it's a, an indifference to what other people say about you, which is, sort of defies normal human inhibition. And it's only with that that I think you can even begin to survive in politics. And of course, to get to a leadership position in politics, you have to have psychological problems that are beyond, <laughs> beyond any normal uh, frame of reference, <laughs> because no ordinary normal people could possibly survive you know, what's needed to get to up there. So is that a fancy question? Yeah, it it, does, it does, <laughs> does,
0: does, does very well. So, look, the International Crisis Group, You, mm. after leaving Australian politics, you go to The Hague, is that right? To to Brussels? To Brussels. And, um, and you end up as the CEO of this nascent group, the International mm. Crisis Group. Perhaps you could... Just tell a little bit about that to people who don't know what it is and and, and how, maybe even go on from there a little bit to what responsibility to protect is and how that came out of that.
1: Well, in in short, this was the idea to create a brand new sort of international NGO that would have some of the best and brightest people in the world associated with it on its board and very familiar household names, former presidents, prime ministers, foreign ministers and so on and would be sufficiently resourced to be able to put into key trouble spots, actual and potential, right around the world, uh, people who would have a thorough understanding of the language, the culture and be able to report on what was happening, what was going wrong, what was needed to fix it, to translate that into effective policy recommendations, prescriptions, and then to engage in very high-level advocacy at the foreign ministry or prime ministry or whatever level, which is fine, but that wasn't our shtick. It was to do the field-based research, the policy prescriptions and the high-level advocacy uh, that would hopefully um, lead to a world in which there was less conflict, less violent conflict, less horror and misery of war. When we started out, um, when I started out in Brussels, I think we had, because um, you know, I inherited an organisation which had got off to a good start, but then had the wobbles and had some leadership that went off the rails. We had about 20 people working on two or three countries in Eastern Europe and in Africa with a small budget of less than two million and fading away. And it wasn't really, but by the time I finished ten years, nine and a half years later, we had. Uh, 150 people working in 60 countries with a budget of 17 million, and we really did make a fairly major impact in a whole bunch of issues, and um, you know, trying to stop wars even starting in various places in Africa. And of course, the point about conflict prevention is when you succeed, nothing happens, therefore nobody notices. But um, and conflict resolution strategies, we were the ones that uh, came up with the basic solution uh, for the Iran nuclear problem, which if it had, and I spent a lot of time doing backroom negotiations between the Iranians and, well, a channel of communication and ideas between the Iranians and the Americans, because the Americans weren't talking to the Iranians and also the Iranians the Europeans, because the Europeans were talking but not listening. So, um, uh, And we would have solved the Iranian problem because the, the solution that was eventually negotiated was exactly what we'd mapped out 15 years before. We also mapped out in great deal of detail a, a, a solution to the Israeli-Palestine problem, which is now careering off the rails yet again, uh, not just by the familiar back-of-the-envelope thing saying the Jerusalem issue has got to be solved, the refugee return issue has got to be solved, the security issue has got to be solved. We spent you know, months preparing a very detailed blueprint, hundreds and hundreds of pages, maps and everything else, saying exactly how the solution... So it was, it was an organisation which did actually, you know, make a difference, and... Um, how, you know, did you, how did you get people to listen to you? Well, mate, but partly it was because I, I was a former foreign minister, um, so I could get in the door of at the foreign ministerial level, certainly head of department level, sometimes the prime ministerial, sometimes presidential level. But well, I could get in the door at least once, and if they felt that I had something useful to say and was producing new material, which was based on ground truth, not just Beltway reporting from other people's blogs now or other people's reporting, but we were giving new information. About what was happening and how to fix it, uh, we, we were seen as as the gold standard organisation. I think I mean I'm, I'm, sounds like I'm blowing the trumpet here, but it was regarded as a very very successful organisation of its kind. And um, you know it's one of the, one of the happiest things I've, I've done. I think doing that. I didn't have a particularly high media profile, because it wasn't that sort of job. It wasn't a campaign advocacy job, it was a private advocacy job, but it depended on having really, really strong... And I mean, in the book, I I talk a lot about uh, lessons learned, what makes for an effective NGO, including an international NGO, what makes for effective conflict prevention, resolution, strategies, what are the key elements. So the book is not just a succession of anecdotes about gee whiz, mum, I was, I was there when this happened, but it's, it's about, you know, what I actually learned from that engagement in the hope uh, that this and, will be and useful. And
0: I think that's what makes the book interesting, is, is that there is really solid um, facts, that there, are, there are stories there and uh, examples of how you can actually make this work. As I say, you've got kind of these lists. Yeah, I mean, there's
1: quite a lot of anecdotes as well, including, <coughs> including the time that Jim Baker, the US Secretary of State, said to me in a context which I think I would prefer not to mention now, he says, sometimes, Gareth, you've just got to rise above principle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, lots, lots and lots of stories about that. Yeah,
0: no, there's the, the, uh, often the very difficult ones are, are punctuated by some little story. There was one about two people in a lift at some point. I can't remember quite
1: what oh, that was. Do you want me to tell one? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about Dick Walcott, who was put in there by a famous Australian diplomat was put in there by Hawke to mind me uh, as foreign minister because he didn't think I was necessarily going to be all that reliable. And, uh, but we'll, we'll, and we, we got over that. We, we made clear the relationship proper relationship between a minister and the head of department. But Wilcott was a very famous um, uh, raconteur, and I think the best of all his stories, which may conceivably have been true, but more than <laughs> I. Uh, was about his time as a diplomat in West Africa when he had a very close relationship with the Liberian President Tubman, uh, who was known as President Tubman. And uh, Tubman was going up in a lift, uh, but was a very forceful character, going up in a lift in the uh, state capital one day uh, with his vice president, allegedly with Mr Wolcott there as well, and the, uh, the president says, Vice President, did you just break wind? To which the reply of the vice president was, "No, Shad, but I will if you want me to." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's, but that's not very relevant to policy formulation,
0: <laughs> but but it, li- it it lightens the load. Um, but um, uh, the. <laughs> So, so if we could move on to Responsibility to Protect, because yeah. one of the things that came out of... I think, it, as I understand it, the, the kind of... The, the narrative is that it comes out of the, um, the International Crisis Group, is this thing that the awareness... I mean, this, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to see how the world has changed in my lifetime. I'm 66 years old, so there's been... When you talk about how Australia was in the sixties to, to the way it is now, I don't know if anyone saw the little clip of David Maher this morning on The Insiders, um, talking about um, on television live when the um, marriage equality got passed, and he was just there saying, "People like me, we got put in jail for having sex when I was a young man, and and here we are, we, I'm allowed to marry now, you know." And it was just the, the changes are just extraordinary. In this context we have the subject of genocide, yeah. which wasn't... It, it didn't even exist, really, as a word. It didn't even exist as a concept. People were doing it, but yeah. we weren't kind of considering it as a problem or something. I, 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 and, and you came along with your group and decided yeah. that it needed well, to be articulated. Uh, yeah,
1: well, so, let, let me explain about that. I mean, um, we can come back, I hope, to the question of how much optimism or pessimism is justified, and I have to say the same-sex marriage result is something that really ought to reinforce our inherent optimism that for all the other horrible things that are going on, <coughs> reform, change for the better, is still possible. The better angels of our nature can prevail, and we, we can talk to more about that. But the, the, the responsibility to protect... This was born out of some of the work I was doing in International Crisis Group, but the actual genesis of this new international norm, which I'll describe in a second, was an international commission which I was asked to chair by the Canadian government, as it turned out, to address the issue which was staring the whole international community in its face at the end of the 90s after the unfolding series of genocidal horrors. That we'd been exposed to, most notably and memorably in Rwanda in 1994, when 800,000 people were butchered within the space of two or three months in an ethnic frenzy of uh, cleansing and and murder. Then the Srebrenica event the following year, when 8,000 men and boys under the leadership, under the, the the Serbian militia under the leadership of Mladic, who has just now been prosecuted to, to conviction in the last couple of weeks, and were let out and just summarily executed even in the face of alleged UN uh, protection. We had the situation in Kosovo, which was a situation of effective international intervention to stop such a genocide, but in an atmosphere of complete lack of international consensus and when there was no Security Council resolution to authorise the use of military force to stop it. So it was a huge issue, this question of under what circumstances is it necessary, appropriate, possible, legally necessary, desirable to intervene to stop genocide and other major crimes against humanity. There was no consensus. So my commission came up with the concept of the responsibility to protect which was embraced unanimously, most unusually for a commission report of this kind, by the UN General Assembly meeting at head of government and state level at the World Summit in 2005. And essentially, this, in a nutshell, the idea is that every state has a responsibility to protect its own peoples from genocide or other mass atrocity crimes. Other states in the system have a responsibility to, to help them in that endeavour if they're in a mood to be helped. And when a state manifestly fails in that responsibility, the wider international community has a responsibility to engage, to do something effective to avert uh, the crisis, including in an extreme case and with Security Council support through military intervention. There had been this enthusiasm for the idea of humanitarian intervention by the, the Western societies, you know, send in the Marines. But that had been seen by the global south as just more of the old imperialist shtick the right to intervene, and they weren't going to accept it. The responsibility to protect was a new way of articulating a way through this. We succeeded in articulating it, I think, you know, well enough to win international consensus. Where are we now on this? I think we do have a new norm established. The, ni- the idea that grotesque crimes of this kind occurring behind sovereign state borders are nobody else's business. Is simply now dead. Everybody acknowledges they are people's business, and the Genocide Convention really meant something. Universal Declaration meant something. We have to do something about it. So, so So,
0: how does that play out? Well, I'm just explaining.
1: I mean, there's a normative acceptance. I think there's four benchmarks by which you judge how useful our endeavours were. One is how much normative acceptance there is of the principle, and debates every year in the UN General Assembly indicate that there's plenty of not just lip service, there's genuine acceptance of the principle. Secondly, is a lot of um, institutional change has occurred to, to implement effectively strategies to deal with this, both preventively and reactively, including this, the birth of the International Criminal Court, which, you know, and a lot of other things have been happening. Thirdly, a preventive activity. Has it been an effective prevention mechanism? And here again, what I said before about when prevention succeeds, nothing happens, therefore nobody notices, means that a lot of prevention stuff just doesn't get the recognition it deserves. But take, if I might very quickly, the case of Burundi as an example. Burundi is next door to Rwanda in Central Africa. It's got almost exactly the same demographic makeup. It's been a genocidal catastrophe waiting to happen almost any time in the last, uh, you know, 15, 20 years. But every time it's got close to the edge of the volcano, the Security Council has met, people have invoked the Responsibility to Protect principle, diplomats have been sent in, and somehow the situation's been diffused. On the final benchmark, the one that really matters, when the stuff really does hit the fan and you've got a horrible unfolding situation of the kind that we've obviously had in Syria, the kind that we had in Sri Lanka, the kind we now have with Myanmar, with the Rohingya people, how well has the Responsibility to Protect actually served us? And here the answer is, well, not nearly, nearly, nearly as well as we hope. We did well enough in Cote d'Ivoire and a few other cases, Kenya. We, we did invoke the principle and it worked uh, to stop. You know, genocide in its tracks, but there are many instances where the old familiar realpolitik still continues to play out. So it's, this, is, this is work in progress, all I can say is that, and I spell it all out in a long chapter in this book, I do think this is an area in which the world has, there has been a fundamental mindset change, we still haven't been good enough about translating that mindset into effective activity when you've got self-interested vetoes being applied by the Russians and others. I mean, you know, life is very difficult and we can't pretend otherwise, but I think we have made a difference. Yeah.
0: And um, in the same token, we can go on to kind of the nuclear disarmament the, 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 because there is another sort of thread of this same thing, isn't it? And, yeah, well, and, I've... Uh... And, and if I might just kind of introduce that topic a little bit more is that one of the things that Gareth says at the beginning of his, at the beginning of his chapter about um, the... The, the attempt to stop nuclear proliferation is that he says that as a, as a world we have been, had no problems with the idea of getting rid of chemical weapons. The idea that somehow or other just because they've been invented we can't get rid of them has never occurred to us. They are ab- abominable, they need to be um, outlawed, so we've outlawed them. But for some reason we can't do the same thing with nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah, well, the world's been spooked by the belief that nuclear weapons are some kind of safety blanket, are some sort of genuine contribution to our security. But the evidence is really not... And that's, you know, the, the whole mythology of the Cold War, the you know, ideology of the Cold War, that we were preserved from catastrophe by the existence of these huge, mutually assured destruction arsenals on both sides. Uh, you know, the, the storyline that um, another part of the, the mythology of nuclear weapons is that um, Hiroshima, of course, and Nagasaki ended the Second World War and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. I mean, it's now generally acknowledged by most, not all, historians that it was the entry of Russia into the war against Japan in that very same week that was the crucial factor. It wasn't the dropping of the bombs, which had caused no more actual damage than the firebombing of Tokyo, which had been greeted with profound you know, lack of interest in the result by the Japanese. Look, it was a long and complicated argument about all this. The short point, I think, is, is this. We're all conscious of the need to avoid nuclear nonproliferation, new states coming to the game. But there's not nearly enough attention focused on the absolute necessity to move rapidly towards actual nuclear disarmament. Of all the public policy problems in the world at the moment, there are only two which, if we don't get right, are capable of destroying life on this planet as we know it. One, of course, is climate change. We don't get that right. The other is a nuclear weapons catastrophe because of what can happen with even a, a fairly minor exchange of nuclear weapons in terms of life on this planet as we know it. And frankly, nuclear weapons can kill us a hell of a lot faster than CO2. So we need to do something about it. And um, I just despair, I mean, I'm an optimist about most things, but I really despair about where we're at on this, because there's just so much tacit acceptance of the, of the utility of nuclear weapons as some sort of preserver for us, ignoring the total hypocrisy that's involved in the states that have nuclear weapons, saying to other states that don't have them, nuclear weapons are relevant for our security and those who say are with us, but they're not relevant to yours, you can't have them. There's no logic in this. My own belief is that um, nuclear weapons are, for all practical purposes, unusable. They're not very useful as a deterrent uh, at all, whatever role they might have played in the past. And there's a gigantic danger that so long as anybody possesses them, Uh, They will in fact be used, if not deliberately, then by accident, miscalculation, human error, human idiocy, cyber sabotage or something of that kind. So to me this is an incredibly high priority. We've got to do more, just final word on this, we've got to do more than simply campaign in support of the nuclear ban treaty. As wonderful as that treaty is, it's been negotiated and supported by about 120 countries and you know, Nobel Prize and everything that went with it. That's terrific in establishing a new normative standard that the majority of the world's countries want to sign up to. There should be no nuclear weapon. But it's absolutely useless as a device for getting those countries with nuclear weapons to abandon them, and countries like Australia and all the allies and partners of the nuclear weapon states to go with it, because it's not a very operational treaty, it's not a step-by-step treaty, it's all or nothing. And uh, there's all sorts of practical reasons why even a well-intentioned nuclear power would not be inclined to embrace the treaty at the moment because of the absence of enforcement verification provisions and so on. So I've got a quite complex and nuanced approach to this based on other work that I've been doing now for many, many years, which involves, you know, genuine commitment to step-by-step process. What I can't stand is countries like Australia under its present government talking the talk about the need for a step-by-step process, but then doing absolutely nothing to help advance that process. And uh, I've got a very big argument with the uh, with the present Government about that. That's another story.
0: Um, and speaking of, of people that you have arguments with, one of the... One of the in, 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 in the book here, you're very scathing of the Greens.
1: Only because, look, I, I understand the idealism of the Greens. I mean, my whole family now votes Green, for God's sake, in Victoria. <laughs> um, well, I was going to uh, say there are a lot, a lot because, of... Because there's a sort of a belief that the, you know, the Labour Party's let them down on a lot of the things about which they're very idealistic, I've got a very idealistic family. Um, and I understand that, and I've got a lot of respect for people like Richard Di Natale and so on, Bob Brown before him, you know, passionate advocates of a lot of good things. But the big problem politically with the Greens is that far, far too often, they have made the best the enemy of the good. This unwillingness to participate in the business of politics, the compromises that actually move the game forward as distinct from just make you feel better. And you know the two obvious examples, and I can't help but mention them in the book, are the Emissions Trading Scheme and the, uh, the Malaysian solution, the regional solution, and the refugee issue. And the Greens were appropriately, totally passionate about creating a fossil-free future for Australia and, you know, getting there. But it was the failure to support, you know, that particular proposal, because it didn't go far enough, uh, that killed that and led to the whole tragedy that unfolded with Rudd and everything that's happened subsequently. And on the Malaysian solution, I mean, it was the Greens saying, no, uh, to put eggs in the basket of a country which is not a member of the Refugee Convention is just not good enough. And, and as a result, we had this race to the bottom by the major parties. We are where we are, and what would have been a solution to that several years ago uh, just didn't happen. So I, I had some bad experiences in the early days of the Greens with the, um, with the two West Australians who were basically, to be very gentle about it, just a little bit nutty. I mean, there was um, <laughs> Dee Margetts and Christabel Chamarette. I mean, I talk about them in the book, because the native title legislation, getting that Marbo legislation through the Senate against the absolutely relentless opposition, clause after clause after clause, 348 amendments I had to debate over 50 hours thrown at me by negative amendments by the opposition coalition party, and I had to try and negotiate. A way through the Senate on the of the native title legislation, with this miscellany of crossbenchers, and who two crucial players were the Greens. And the Greens were totally well motivated. Yes, of course they wanted native Title, but they wanted the bells and whistles, every conceivable, you know, thing, and it just wasn't going to be doable, it wasn't going to be deliverable, it wasn't achievable, and it was just negotiating with I mean, it left me a little bit jaundiced. So what, what, I, would, you know, what I want to happen in Australian politics is not for people who are disaffected with the major parties of the centre-left and the centre-right, um, you know, to go off looking for salvation in in fringe dwellers, whether they're idealistic fringe dwellers like the Greens or whether they're you know single-issue fringe dwellers with rather uglier agendas like the Hansenites. I don't want that to happen. I want the major parties of the left, the left of centre, right of centre to get their act together and become, once again, credible alternatives uh, for the Australian public, who is understandably fed up with a lot of the very poor quality of Australian politics in recent years. And I don't think the answer is in in going off sideways. The answer is in getting better policy making and um, better performance out of the the major parties.
0: But you do see as uh, there are a lot of people who are natural Labour voters yeah. who are, are going are being are defecting to the Greens because yeah. because the Labour Party continues to aim too right of centre in a lot of people's opinions. Well, a lot of people, yeah. And I mean just I, I bring it not to attack because I, I think a lot of the things that you say in the book, particularly about refugees, about climate change, kind of really out of the Greens' playbook, really, rather than out of either of the two major parties, in many ways. Well,
1: I've been talking about this stuff long before the Greens turned up well, on the horizon. <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, look, I, I think we all understand each other But I know there'll be many people in this audience who are naturally attracted to the Greens because, you know, they, they do seem to be saying things which are resonating more with them and, you know, uncompromising positions on big issues of principle. All I'm saying is that in the, the business of politics... As cynically as so many of us may be inclined to regard it, the actual business of getting stuff done does depend on a capacity to, you know, to compromise on occasion where that's only where that's going to be the only way forward, and that just has not been part of the Greens' uh, repertoire. And you know, for all the the hope that the Greens will emerge as a major third force with enough seats in their own right to maybe form government somewhere, sometime, if that were to happen, okay, that would be, that'd be one way of very obviously advancing idealistic objectives. But in you know, the world we are occupying where at the most the Greens are going to be influence, influential in the margin, it just seems to me that um, you know, for those of a, a more idealistic cast of mind, for God's sake, put your energies into ensuring that that agenda is the one that prevails. With your, part, with your major party of choice, rather than just abandoning that as, as hopeless. I don't think it's hopeless at all, I'm actually quite, I mean I don't know what kind of audience this is and I don't want to sound too partisan about it, but um, I'm actually encouraged by the the quality of people coming into politics, I have to say, particularly on the Labour side these. And I didn't expect to be able to say that because the triumph of the apparatchiks in terms of pre-selection policy has been evident for the world to see, and it's still pretty evident in the composition of the Senate at the moment, I have to say, on the Labor side, but the number of really, really first class people who've been winning seats, lower house seats, and fighting off, you know, the the apparatchiks, and fighting off those who have just been, you know, f- or coming up through the factions and persuading the faction leaders that they deserve to be pre I mean, Queensland, I mean, people like Terry Butler, who's not yet a major prominent figure, um, you know, on, on, the, on the front bench, but superb quality person. People like this all around the place. And I think, I think um, you know, that pound for pound, uh, the quality of the, the Labor team at the moment, um, and I'm trying not to be positive, but I think it's at least as good as the, uh, the Hawke-Keating period, which does tend to be regarded in retrospect as the gold standard. So I'm optimistic about that, and I'm optimistic about the capacity for good principled policy making provided we get the right people in there. And the only way you're going to get that, the, the big things done is by supporting one of the other major parties. You're not really going to be able to get there by just supporting the, the fringe-dwellers, however understandably idealistic your position is. And I, I'm
0: kind of aware of the time, and I would like to go to questions. Mm-hmm. So... Must, so yeah. But, but I, I want to finish with one last question from me, which feeds on from what you were just saying, is because you said you are optimistic. Mm-hmm. Your book is called Incorrigible Optimist there is a sense in the world that we are close to a catastrophe mm-hmm. a lot of the time, and yet here you are, yeah, with, with 50 years of experience
1: in politics, still optimistic. Well, the question I've most often been asked around the country over the last two months since this book came out is, how could you have been dopey enough or naive enough to put a title like that <laughs> on a book, given the state of the world that we all read about every day of the week? But I, I think for two reasons, essentially. One is, if you are looking objectively about the way the world has been evolving. For all the particular horror shows at the moment in Yemen and Syria and Rohingyas in Myanmar and other things that we're all understandably totally upset and outraged about. For all of that, if you look back over the course of history, there's been remarkable transformations and continuing transformations to the present day. The number of people being taken out of poverty, the horror and misery of poverty. I mean, 700 million people alone in China over the last two decades, we haven't talked about China, it's another whole issue we might take up in question time, um, but the reduction in the way in which violent conflict has been occurring, the reduction in the number of wars, the number of people who are being killed in wars, it doesn't seem that way when you look at Yemen or Syria or something, but when you look at the overall figures, the graph looks just like that reduction in major human rights violations, including genocidal incidents. Of course, it doesn't look like that when you look at the ethnic cleansing in Myanmar at the moment and other things that have gone badly, horribly wrong in recent years. But overall, the trend lines are there. And each one of the particular situations around the place that is giving us cause for anxiety and agony, like North Korea nukes and so on, I see ways through each one of those situations which may not give us quick, good solutions, but which at least can stop I, I, the situation. I, I did say worse. I was
0: going to stop asking you questions, but, but ways through Trump and
1: and and can well, you, you know, well, even Trump, even <coughs> Trump, which is you know beyond my powers to invent new adjectives. I think I've, I've, I've exhausted them all. I mean, I exhausted most of them in the National Press Club a few months ago when I said he, would, when I said when he was about one month into office that this was the, the most ill-informed, uh, least prepared ethically challenged and psychologically ill-equipped person ever to assume the American presidency. Um, and, and now I have to say that, that looks like a considerable understatement, but there we go. Um, but even with Trump, even with Trump, look, we're seeing the pushback. We're seeing the, all those institutions in American politics which have been so frustrating for commentators have talked about the glories of the parliamentary system where executive governments, once elected, can basically do anything they want. Um, You know, the pushback of the the courts, the pushback of Congress, even that Republican-dominated, you know, wimpish Congress, the individuals that are pushing back within the system and stopping some of the crazier things happening, those senior military figures who've actually come out and said, if we get an order to initiate a nuclear strike, a preemptive nuclear strike, not in retaliation to some missile horde that's coming at us. We're going to think long and hard about our obligations under international criminal law. We'll be... You know, we'll be and all this sort of stuff is happening, and I think the counter the counter pressures are there, and the, the American public's tolerance, taking the, the 35% base to one side, is very, very limited indeed for the sort of outrageous misbehaviour we're seeing. So even with Trump, I'm reasonably optimistic about the longer term. But I wanted to say Apart from all those objective reasons for being optimistic, there's also, let me finish on this, there's a psychological, there is a psychological reason. Unless you believe, unless you believe that the world can be made a better place, the country can be made a better place, that something positive can be achieved by political action, public action, whatever, you're not even going to try. You're not even going to get out of bed in the morning, you're just going to say, you know, the worst is going to happen, there's nothing we can do about it. Optimism is not self-fulfilling, but it is self-reinforcing in exactly the same way that pessimism is self-reinforcing and self-defeating. And my my view in all of this is that um, it's terribly important for people, particularly young people, to put aside some of the obvious cynicism and despair they have about the political process and just think how important it is to be positive about the art of the possible. my final word is, is you know, from, the, uh, from the, uh, the quote page right at the beginning. Um, Better to live life as an optimist and periodically be proved wrong than live life as a pessimist and always be right.
0: Now, let's, let's take some questions from the audience. I, I, because we're recording it, if you wouldn't mind speaking into the microphone, please. Uh, good, good evening, Gareth, thank you for your attendance. Um, DPRK. One of the things that I think is being missed in the media analysis is that our good friend Comrade Kim <laughs> doesn't have a re-entry vehicle, so in other words he can send the missiles up, they travel their ballistic arc okay. and burn up on re-entry. And so thus, I think, the whole thing in the DPRK with the missiles is me posturing. Um, What's your opinion on that?
1: Look, it's only a matter of time before the DPRK, North Korea's capability uh, is complete. Not only in terms of having the rudimentary weapons they have at the moment, but also the missiles to strap onto them not only for immediate delivery to South Korea to Japan, which they can probably do at the moment, but also the big intercontinental ones, which do have this technical issue of re-entry capability. And the best analyses I've seen is that developing that capability to seriously threaten the United States, or to be able to threaten Australia for that matter, is probably two or three years away. But it's only two or three years away. So you've got to assume, you've got to assume that that capability is there. What really is crucial before we, you know, rush to be, you know, firing nuclear weapons preemptively and setting loose an unholy, unholy awful war with massive, massive casualties, which I think would unquestionably be the case of even the most surgical attempt to knock this capability out. Before we do that, let's just look at the question of intent. And I just i have been dealing with North Koreans for a long time. I was involved in the mid-90s with the negotiations on the first agreed framework. I was involved in the International Crisis Group, at least watching closely the developments in the early 2000s and following it pretty closely ever since. Through all the successive leadership changes, the North Koreans have been about one thing, that is regime survival and leadership survival. That's what they're about. And they see nuclear weapons as their guarantee of that, I mean, the more objective among them know that they probably don't need nuclear weapons, because that ring of artillery fire they have around Seoul at the moment, which could kill about 100,000 people in 45 minutes in most estimations, uh, is probably not a bad deterrent already. But nonetheless, there's a psychological comfort blanket Is there. Would they be the first to use nuclear weapons, or for that matter, the first amount of major conventional attack on South Korea? And my answer, I just cannot see it happening because they know, they know that to be homicidal is to be suicidal. Simple as that. So let's just, you know, don't be complacent about this. I mean, I hate the idea of another player in the nuclear arms business, to add to the ones we already have, the five original powers plus India, Pakistan, Israel now having a ninth is, is not good news because of the dangers of miscalculation, particularly if you get the kind of inflated rhetoric that we have from Trump, and that can tend to lead to terrible mistakes being made. It's a horribly fragile situation. But apart from that, let's just take a bit of a bex and have a lie down about the possibility of, um, of uh, you know, sort of holocaust tomorrow. It's just not going to happen.
0: I see you there, sir, and uh, I see this gentleman over here. We'll, we'll go to you. Gareth Biggles,
2: I love you. <laughs> I read all the Biggles books <laughs> years ago. Uh, i am so thank you for the story about the Tasmanian forests and that sort of thing. I'm sure that that was the best thing you, you, you did from the point of view of a green. It was a great thing that you did and what they did to protect those forests. What do you think of Julie Bishop's White Paper on Defence? Like
1: uh, it's it, White Paper on Foreign Policy, it's, it's better than I thought it would be because it does acknowledge you know, the reality that you can't just wish away uh, the role of China, the expansion of influence and assertiveness by China. It does make reasonably clear that we do have some serious problems in relying on the United States in the future. It's much too cautious diplomatically to say that outright, but I find intriguing that there's references constantly to US engagement in the region, but no references to the L word, US leadership in the region. And that's an important psychological shift for Australian foreign policy to acknowledge the reality that the Americans are just abdicating a leadership role, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I can actually, I mean, maybe I'm a romantic about this, but I can actually see intriguingly support in the white paper for what I regard as the appropriate response to the present new strategic environment, which is, in a nutshell, less reliance on the United States, more Asia, more reliance on developing relationships with all the key players in Asia. And thirdly, more self-reliance, I think it is going to require more money being spent on more carefully targeted defence capability in particular areas. More Asia is the sort of interesting component. The the paper is, um, you know, is is quite clear about the need for Australia to develop much more substantial relationships, not just with the the familiar trio of um, Japan and and, uh, and India and South Korea, but also Indonesia features prominently, and I think that's dead right. I mean, Indonesia has to be part of our thinking about the future, um, and even in relation to China. I mean, what's what's interesting about the paper on China is that it, um, it identifies you know the things we are concerned about with China at the moment, including the, the you know the, the unacceptable pushiness in the South China Sea and so on, but it doesn't just sort of, in essence, say China is our economic partner and US is our strategic partner and somehow we just sort of got to navigate this. It's a more nuanced thing than that. And in particular, what I like about the paper, and I didn't expect to like, um, is that there's a whole chapter of it which is very specifically addressed to what I was talking about before as the global public goods issues, change and um, terrorism and uh, pandemics and you know, a whole bunch of democracy, human rights um, issues. Um, And it brings them up to a key part of Australian... It doesn't use my language about good international citizenship. I think the missing ingredient there is is drawing those two threads together and saying that by working constructively with China on a larger agenda that involves Chinese engagement on these, you know, global issues, there is a way forward uh, for a saner and more cooperative world. But um, I expected you know, to not like the white paper very much. I thought the last two or three that have been produced by the conservative side of politics have just not been realistically responsive to the the world around us. I think this one is a lot better, and I've, I've said as much to Julie Bishop. And, uh, you know, who I regard as not a... I mean, she's not very creative, she's not very idealistic, she's a very transactional sort of person, but um, you know, we, we could do worse um, as Foreign Minister at the moment. She, she handles herself pretty well. Um, you res- well, you've affirmed my respect for politicians, particularly <laughs> Labour ones. I know there's an enormous amount of work that goes into being a politician. Um, my question to you as an ex-Labour minister is to ask you, do you have anything to say to us about... The refugee issue,
0: which troubles us all to to the bottom of our hearts almost every day of our lives, we can't see a solution. Can yep. you? What What can you tell us about that? Thank you.
1: Well, <clears throat> well, I have to say that I'm personally very, very deeply troubled by the refugee issue, and I've made my view clear for what that's worth. To my colleagues still in the Labor Party and indeed others in government as well on many occasions. I think the way through this is essentially that previous Malaysian solution, the regional solution. I think we do have to recognise the ugliness of people smuggling and the problem of deaths at sea, and I think we do have to hang our hat on continued active military pushbacks of boats coming across the water, but doing so with the cooperation of the neighbouring countries, particularly Indonesia. We do have to put significant resources into regional processing centres and be prepared to accept a very significant flow of properly identified refugees, properly certified refugees coming from those centres. And we sure as hell have to provide, that's the longer term solution, dimension to this, And we sure as hell have to get those people out of Manus and Nauru. We should be accepting, in a flash, the New Zealand offer to take 150 of them, and encouraging Jacinta Ardern to take some more, which she will find very difficult politically to do, but it's there for the taking. Of course, try and get the Americans to follow through, but they're dragging their feet so badly on that. I mean, yeah, sure they might come back through the back door into Australia, but I mean, it's just a grotesque affront to our common humanity to treat these people the way we have and it's doing Australia's international reputation let me tell you no good at all I think the um, I think the Labour government is going to remain nerve and the labor opposition is going to remain incredibly nervous about this issue uh, I mean you know both sides of politics have just it's been a race to the bottom and going down and dirty ever since Tampa, and it's just been, I think, I mean, I don't know how I would have handled it if I'd been in government, I just think it's been a disgrace. But I think in practice, in practice I think a Labor opposition in government would be very, very quick to accept a New Zealand solution or whatever, just get people out of Manus, Nauru, and be less less rigorous about this business of no one under any circumstances ever. Know, for the next 30 years, can can come anywhere near Australia. I think we will just have to put more resources into the the front line, you know, defences, pushbacks, and so on, but solve the problem more generally in the other way. But uh, that's my two penneth on that.
3: Thank
2: you, Gareth. You, you mentioned briefly climate change. Now, uh, uh, it's it's pretty strong opinion that climate change is largely driven by the, the proliferation of, of our species on the planet and you mentioned that in, in China there are 700 million people who have moved out of poverty which could largely be attributed to the one child policy I believe but 700 million people out of poverty means 700 million people with a much bigger carbon dioxide footprint than, than people who live in poverty. On the other hand you have people who live in utter excruciating misery in towns like Manila and Mexico City and Rio de Janeiro, people trapped in poverty and unable to break out, you know, due to a, a lack of means of uh, of family planning control. Often ideologically driven by religion to to sustain a high reproductive rate. I wonder if you could address this whole question of of uh, the the population of the planet.
1: <laughs> look, look. Obviously, you know, unregulated and uncontrolled and over the top population growth is a, is a contributor to poverty, no doubt about that. And one of the great lessons we've learned is with increasing education and rising levels of prosperity, um, you know, this problem to a very significant extent does solve itself. I mean, birth rates have gone down very dramatically, you know, right around the developing world when there has been, you know, serious movement towards more effective women's education um, in particular. And I think, um, you know, the notion of, uh, you know, doing anything to, to think we can solve you know the world's poverty problems by some more rigorous application of a functional equivalent of a one China a one child policy, uh, I don't think is a terribly realistic um, option in the present environment. I mean, what we do have to do is um, you know is obviously tackle the pli- climate change issue in all the way that it is being challenged by the parties to the Paris the, the remaining parties to the Paris uh, Climate uh, Accord. And um, you know one of the one of the hugely hugely encouraging factors is the way in which, you know, sort of baseload options through wind and solar, which, you know, people like me as recently as about a year ago were saying were just inconceivable. Uh, that renewables could give us the sort of the baseload capacity we need. We're going to have to do civil nuclear. We're going to have to do something if we're going to get out of uh, out of reliance on fossil fuels. I mean, already the technology is proving us proving us wrong um, on that. I mean, battery capacity and everything else. And and with the kind of and you know people sniffy about China's policy on many issues at the moment, and maybe they are being as hypocritical as other great powers have been in the past. On, on great issues, but um, Xi Jinping certainly sees a big opportunity to take international leadership on this issue, as he did in the aftermath of the Americans walking away uh, last June. And I think he's very serious, not only because he regards it as as a major global problem, he regards it as a major domestic problem because of the levels of pollution. The levels of opposition there are, you know, to the, the crappy climate environment in China at the moment. So I think with a combination of that degree of political will from people who really matter, plus the rapidly evolving technology, I think we can, we can solve this problem and we can get the economic stuff going in the way that it has gone. Uh, we can basically solve the population problem without resort to probably unenforceable, draconian family limitation measures.
3: You talk about the... Um Problems of alienation, which is a fairly global one with major parties and the disaffections of people moving to fringe groups. Um, I'm wondering whether you deal with the issue of monetisation of politics as a cause of this alienation. Uh, One might look at the United States and say that the the foundations of democracy are truly rotting away from excessive pouring of money, but if you, you look in Australia... The amount of corporate and trade union donations over the years, of the last decade, have gone up exponentially. Mm. If you look at the latest uh, state election here, you see the extraordinary spectre of the Labor Party being unable yep. to create a, a, an honest climate change policy. Yep. Uh, and even the Greens, uh, I saw their... Pamphlet were calling for, quite rightly, the withdrawal of corporate donations, but not trade union donations. So very quickly, do you assess, do you see that this is a real issue? Is there a sort of pathway which the international crisis group might create for solving <laughs> this issue?
1: Well, that's a, that's a huge question. I mean, in terms of what the cause of the present economic discontent and the degree of populism we're witnessing, I mean, it's a combination of economic anxiety, plus security anxiety, 9-11 and all that sailed with us, plus cultural anxiety, which has got mixed up with the first two in ways we can all sort of recognise. The way through that, I think, is just through through better quality politics, which means you know politics in which people can have confidence that won't be corrupted by, by big money, with one side or another, and that's a very fair point to make. Um, but I mean, we, we just, and I, I spent a whole chapter talking about this, about what we need to do to fix restore confidence in politicians, policy-making, in particular the major parties that I'm talking about, centre-left, centre-right. And it really, it comes down to what I describe as a, as a combination of of new listening, new thinking, and new acting. Listening is incredibly important. You can't get anywhere in politics without listening to what people tell telling, and far too much of the reaction we've seen against the Hillary Clintons and everybody else is because, um, you know, of decent policy making, there's there's the the perception that people have been not listening to the real concerns, uh, particularly on issues like the future of work and the the impact of technology on that. So new thinking means responding to that, not just listening, but coming up with new ideas. And one of the things I think, for example, in that context of the future of work is probably the biggest single domestic issue in Australia and anywhere else that it's going to face us over the next 20, 30 years. Um, You know, we do have to be looking seriously at um, possible solutions like universal basic income, which, I mean, a lot of people say is just inconceivable in the present environment. But if, with artificial intelligence generated job destruction in driverless cars and so on, if we start getting 20, 25 percent levels of unemployment, which is not inconceivable in 20, 25 years' time, and I'm just not remotely as confident as I was about all the previous industrial revolutions that new jobs will emerge. Then I think these are the kind of policy solutions we need to talk about. And new acting, what I mean by that is just a, in some ways, it's the courage to cooperate. It's the recognition that not all wisdom is on one side or the other side of politics, that an awful lot of the political sturm and drang is just irritating noise so far as the electorate is concerned. And what they want to hear is coalescence around basically decent policy. You know, whether it's Gonski on schools or whatever it is on which. Partisan positions have been taken just because of that fear, fear of being seen to be embracing or you know, accepting the other side, the fear of defeat, the fear of, of not having your own view prevail, wrong headed it might be. So, I mean, it just, I, th- I think, you know, we have a saying in the Labour movement that the, you know, the mob will work you out. And I think at the end of the day, they do. And, you know, if you just do resort to sort of simple-minded, you know, sloganeering in your approach to politics, even if you can't expect the great majority of electors to follow every nuance of every complexity of every country, they won't, they won't ever do that. But they, they recognise when good policy making is occurring, and they recognise when crap is occurring. They recognise when what they're seeing in Parliament is just third-rate, vaudeville, not serious, serious analysis and debate. Well, you're not talking about, about, about our, our present parliament, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, when, when they see a decent policy debate, you know, as there has been on uh, you know same sex marriage obviously when they see a decent policy debate as there has been on dying with dignity recently in Victoria the last few weeks uh, there's there's a very you know and people can take very different and passionately held views but when people see serious policy issues being debated in a serious way the level of respect just goes up exponentially for politicians and the political process and i think you know the major parties just have to take publics into their confidence and treat people more seriously and with more respect than they've been in the habit of doing for now rather more years than I care to remember.
0: And I think we might call it call it a night on that thing. Please put your hands together to... <laughs> <Is> that... <Yeah. laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs>